I don't know about you, but every once in a while I think to myself with all of the things that distract us, what is it that America needs the most? We would all have our own little check mark someplace on the vast lists that we find. Uh, and for each one of us, uh, based on the needs we have as an individual or a family, uh, it might be an another paycheck. It might be to be called back to work. Uh, it might be that, that uh, things change in Washington or possibly, possibly high on our list someplace is to just to be able to get up one day and not have to ma wear a mask anymore. Do you know what? Let me, let me give you some insight in my personal feelings. <clears throat> Do you know what I hate most about wearing a mask? Every time I put, on it, put it on and look into the mirror, you remember, guys, when you were a little boy, and you went to the barbers, and you got that sidewall haircut, and it makes your ears stick out. My masks, all of them, make my ears stick out. I don't know about you, but, and I just hate that. I look at myself in the mirror as a 73-year-old man, and I see this little kid looking back at me with these big ears hanging out all over the place. <clears throat> that bothers me more than just about anything about wearing a mask. Many rightly would tell us, if we asked that question, what does America need, they would say revival. I think probably a good portion of those of you who are here today would agree with that statement. We need revival. But I got to thinking as I thought about that answer, another question that follows right on its heels. What is it that motivates people to revival? What's, what's one of the things that, that actually bring us from a place where we are to a place where God wants us in this whole scheme of revival? And many, many would say persecution. Uh, it may not be the only way. It may not be the, the, the chief way that God would use. But the fact of the matter is God does use persecution to bring us to a place of revival. Because times of persecution, when all of a sudden maybe we don't have the same status that we once had, which we find in America today. Now, you would have to determine whether we're living as a persecuted church in America today, and I'm sure all of us would have an opinion. But there's one thing I think we could all embrace and agree with today, and that is simply this. The American church and evangelicals in particular do not hold the same status that we once had in America. There was a day when people like Billy Graham stood up and spoke and everybody listened. They may not have been of the same persuasion. They may not have even totally agreed with his message of personal salvation. But when he stood up and spoke, people listened. And today, not so much. It used to be when the pastor of a local church in any community across America walked into to, to any venue, all of a sudden, people got quiet, things, uh, 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 vocabulary changed, <laughs> a lot of things happened, and now, not so much. We've changed our position of status. When Jesus left this earth, he gave his followers what I call the missional mandate, starting at Jerusalem. They were to take this mandate out to Judea and Samaria and all over the world. But it would seem, as we read carefully through the book of Acts, it would seem that somewhere along the line they got comfortable with this big influential church in Jerusalem. They carried weight. 
They spoke a message that people listened to. While they were not certainly uh, in a position to dictate to the, either the government of Rome or the, or the, the church, excuse me, the temple uh, leaders, uh, they had influence. And it would seem that as they go through this and kind of kept their protected status there in Jerusalem, that God finally came along and said, you know, I, I need you to get revived and get out of here and take care of the missional mandate that I gave you. And it would seem little by little, persecution began to drift into the church at Jerusalem. Now, I'm not positive that God always has to bring persecution excuse me, persecution in order to get us to do what we've been called to do. But I would say this, that persecution many times accomplishes that task. Persecution has always made the church stronger. It burns impurity out of the church. It drives nominal people who really don't love God in the church. It drives them away. Worldly attenders drives the church to prayer, it unites churches in brotherly love, and often causes the church to expand exponentially. People begin to recognize that their friends and their neighbors are lost and they need the gospel. They start to realize that the gospel needs to go around the world. Ironic, people who came to the shores of this new world came here because of religious persecution, especially here on the east side of America. Those people eventually fought for freedom in the American Revolution because they realized that a free people could have the free exercise of religion that gave them the opportunity to openly witness to their neighbors, to publicly preach the gospel on street corners and in their churches and in large venues and citywide crusades. They understood the sense of freedom that was so important to try to preach the gospel. But when a people don't use freedom for that purpose, and they are just thankful that they have the freedom to work and to earn a paycheck and, and vote in their government, and that becomes the chief motive, sometimes God says, you know, you probably need just a little bit of prodding to take up this missional mandate for which I gave you freedom to begin with. 244 years later, we may be seeing the beginning of that persecution right here. Who knows? Things have changed a lot in the last 10 to 20 years. I have a good friend, Pastor Jim Bays, who was born and raised in Southern California and has pastored in San Diego, California for the last 40 years. He pastors out on Coronado Island, Baptist Church there, doing a great job. He wrote in a summit list that I'm a part of with pastors and missionaries from around the world, that on Friday, a Ventura County judge issued a temporary restraining order to Calvary Chapel of Ventura, California, prohibiting the church from meeting under any circumstances, no singing, no worship. All the members of the church, from zero to a thousand, is the way the order reads, that can be personally held liable if the church has one open meeting to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And my friend Jim posted on the summit list, I never imagined that it could happen here, but here we are. It's not like persecution should catch us by surprise, by the way. <laughs> we shouldn't wake up one day and say, oh, I didn't see this coming. Well, we should have. 
Jesus told his disciples, since they persecuted me naturally, they're going to persecute you. Paul tells Timothy as he prepares him for ministry, yes, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus is going to suffer persecution. When we live the way God has called us to do in any culture, we stick out like a sore thumb. People recognize who we are and what we're about. They may like it, they may dislike it, but the fact of the matter, they will recognize it. And if they don't like it, in all probability, there will be persecution to follow. Paul proclaimed to the believers at Rome, he said, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? The answer, of course, is no. Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or persecuted or hungry, destitute or in danger or threatened with death? The rhetorical answer is no. He said, you you can't come to the assumption that just because there's persecution going on and you may be the focal point, that that means that God's abandoned us, gone on vacation or doesn't love us any longer. Paul goes on to explain as he writes to the church at Corinth, that's why I take pleasure in my own personal weaknesses. I take pleasure in the insults and the hardships and the persecutions and the troubles that I suffer for Christ because it is during these times of weaknesses that I become strong. Paul said, look, the only way we can really learn how to rely on God and God alone is to God, for God to strip us from all the things that we have confidence in. And occasionally, he says, this is going to be difficult, folks, but I, in fact, am going to allow you to suffer. Today, Pastor Rob asked me to continue his study through Acts by speaking on Acts 4, the persecuted church. This morning, I want to look at just three points very quickly to try to bring what is happening here in focus. Now, there is a lot packed into this chapter. I understand this, and and I'll probably miss some of the things that you wish that I had spoken on today. If you'd like me to come over this afternoon and preach to you all afternoon on every word and verse in this chapter, well, just um, I like my steak medium rare. And uh, I like my potatoes, a good baked potato with some onions and butter on it. And I'll show up whenever you'd like and probably take an offering. But at any rate, (laughs) in this first part of this passage, there's one thing that just, to me, jumps off of the page. And that's this, persecution with opportunities will come. I have come to the realization that if I will just pay attention and get past my immediate reaction and emotions, sometimes their sorrow, discouragement, despondency, anger, whatever that may be, at the situation that's at hand, many times it will allow me to see the situation in a way that I normally would not recognize it. Peter and John, the other believers, they're saying to themselves, wow, this is fantastic. Jesus is gone. The Holy Spirit's come. We've seen 3,000 people saved. And we always get it in our mind the way it is, is the way that it will always be. And all of a sudden, they're being persecuted. 
Now, most of us would get very discouraged. Oh, God, what did I do wrong? Why are you, why are you, you disciplining me? And why is my life so miserable? And, and I thought, gosh, this was just going to be one straight-up shot like a rocket ship, this Christianity thing and, and all the rest of that stuff. And you can tell Peter stepped back and he looked around and he says, hmm, there's a whole crowd of people here hollering at me for preaching in the name of Jesus who would not normally come if I preached the name of Jesus. So I need to use this as an opportunity to preach the name of Jesus. <laughs> and that's what he did. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, it says, they were confronted by the priests. And now that they have these priests right there, Priests that would not, not have shown up to a service. Priests who would not have invited them over to talk to them about Jesus for the afternoon, even if they did cook steak medium rare. They would not have shown up. But now they're right here. They've asked me a question. They're making bold statements, expecting me to respond. Lots of things Peter can say. And what does Peter do? Well, they brought in the two disciples and demanded by what power and in whose name have you done this? Now, their thought is you have no authority to preach and to teach, all right? And we want to know where you think you're getting that authority from. And what they're trying to do is to set up an argument whereby they can say, Rome didn't give you the authority, the temple priests didn't give you the authority, and so now we're going to bring you to trial. What's our response when we get into a pickle like this? Defend, 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 defend. Try to figure a way to excuse our way out of it. Why? Because none of us want to go to jail. None of us want to be beaten publicly. None of us want to be burned to the stake. If I said to you this afternoon, hey, I'm going to meet you at 3 o'clock over at Portstown Arch Park, and we're all going to meet over there this afternoon. They're going to burn us all at the stake for the glory of God. How many of you want to come? But they viewed this as an opportunity. And Peter responds, filled with the Holy Spirit, rulers and elders of our people, and then he just ripped into them. He said, you want to know whose power? You want to know who gave me the authority? Well, let me just tell you all about the stone that the builders rejected that has now become the cornerstone. He says in verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. He could have been a little more blunt. I would have liked him to be a little more blunt. And gone on to say, it's not in the Caesar at Rome, and it's not in the sacrifices of the temple. He didn't, but they got his point. God has given no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. None. Don't look anywhere else because it's only in the name of Jesus. Don't go searching for another savior or a messiah or leader. It's Jesus. Well, the members of the council are amazed. You see, they don't expect this response. People who are brought in under their authority 
realize that their authority carries into Rome. And if Rome feels like this is going to be problematic, they will defend the leaders of the temple and they will in turn execute judgment on whoever the temple leaders say should be judged. So they're amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. They didn't respond like average people who are scared to death of Rome and scared to death of the temple authorities. They stood up to them. They spoke the truth. They said what was on their heart and mind, and they answered their questions honestly from their heart. They could see these are not ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. Folks, let me tell you today what we need. We need those sitting here and those who are watching. We need people whose testimony in the community is they are not ordinary people. They aren't your run-of-the-mill citizen. They're not your run-of-the-mill community members. They're not your run-of-the-mill workers. They're not your run-of-the-mill church members. There's something very special about them. And they also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. And that speciality should point to the fact that we have spent time with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so powerfully, Peter and John look at the situation that is at hand and they say, you know, God's given me a special audience today. People who would have never listened to me. And so I'm going to give it to them. I'm going to give them a whole bucket full to take home today. Those who are followers of Jesus Christ, there's really no good days and bad days. There really aren't. People say, what kind of a day are you having? Well, I'm having a God day. That may mean that things aren't going just the way I planned them. That may mean that they're going better than I wanted them. Maybe worse in the vernacular of today. But they're all God days. This is the day the Lord has made. And we should rejoice and be glad in it. Every day, every situation, person that comes into our lives, including persecution, are opportunities for growth and opportunities for witness. Peter and John saw this time of persecution as just another open door. You see, when you're persecuted, they're going to bring you before people who normally won't listen to you. They're going to ask you questions that if you weren't being persecuted, they would not be asking. They are going to make accusations and expect you to answer things that they would not normally discuss with you. Every Christian martyr you can name saw their audience as those brought together as a congregation to preach to. Just another opportunity to testify. So persecution, first of all, should help us to understand, oh, God's given me another opportunity. Does that mean it'll be fun? No. Does that mean everything will turn out just the way we wanted it to? Absolutely not. Does that mean that all of our hopes and dreams will be fulfilled? Only if your hopes and dreams are wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ and his will and purpose for your life. The second thing that I think jumps off the page are the principles of freedom that have to be defended here. 
as all of this unfolds, <clears throat> the leaders begin to say, well, what should we do with these guys? What should we do with these guys? Now, my immediate response in the flesh would be, you mean to tell me Peter and John preached and none of these guys are going to get saved? I want you to listen to something very carefully. I want you to take this home in your pocket today. God called us to be faithful witnesses regardless of how those we witness to respond. This isn't about how many we get saved. This isn't how many of them listen or how many of them respond positively. This is about us being a faithful witness. Peter and John had a responsibility and that was to tell the truth and they did. Even though it doesn't say 3,000 more were saved or the temple emptied out so these could be Christ followers, it doesn't say that. But they had been faithful. So what they did is they called the apostles back in in verse 18. And so they said, we command you to never again to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. That's to be pondered for a moment. I'm sure as that goes through Peter's mind, like most human beings will wonder what the consequences are going to be if I do. But I think in Peter's mind, it was more, what are the consequences going to be if I don't? Oh yes, the consequences if they do, maybe jail, maybe martyrdom. A life or two may be lost, a handful may no longer be living on this planet, a family may lose a father or a mother, or the whole family may be wiped out. But in Peter and John's mind, what happens if all the believers in Jerusalem no longer preach the gospel? And the consequences that came into his heart, mind were too overwhelming. Lose my life, lose my fortune, lose my family in the most horrendous ways you can think of. But it is still not as bad as a world with no gospel witness and me not fulfilling the missional mandate that Jesus left. So Peter and John replied, do you really think that God wants us to obey you rather than him? We can't stop telling about everything we have seen and heard. He didn't say, okay, yeah, I'll obey, and then go out and disobeyed. Oh, no. Right there in front of God and everybody, he says, you need to know something. <laughs> I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to listen to you. Do what you got to do, but I'm not going to listen to you. As soon as I hit the bricks, we're going to start talking about Jesus again. So at this point, all the council knew that they could do was to threaten them further. I'm not sure what you threaten these men with. Nothing you threatened them with so far has worked. 
any amount of persecution isn't going to work. They are going to go out and preach the gospel. America has never fought wars for the spoils of this world. There was enough godly intent put into our Constitution and our Bill of Rights from the hearts of men who believed that they would give an account to God. So we've never fought wars for the spoils of this world. We fight like the, we don't fight like those of this world. When you find our men going to foreign soils and doing something horrid, it's an aberration. It's an oddity. There's one or a handful. We fought wars with people that every man on the battlefield would do the most evil and ungodly things based on their idea of God and their respect for human beings. But it's important for us to understand something today, that while we don't fight wars for worldly spoil, nor do we fight like those in this world with worldly weapons, we are in a war. We've been in a war ever since the devil took up his cause against God and we will be in that world until we get to heaven and God makes all things new it's a war with evil it's a war that attempts to stamp out the message of God since the beginning in the garden through his fallen creation God's intention was to find those who would testify of his love and his mercy and grace in the world as individuals He used governments, they failed. He used nations like Israel, they failed. He tried to use individuals. And on and on the story went until he proved that mere men could not live godly and they would all fail him. They all had their own agendas. It all came to once they got the power and control that God handed to them, their agendas began to change. And they began to do things more in their own personal liking than to realize that they had an account to give to God at a later date. Jesus came here to bring men back to God and provide a way that that could happen. So sins could be forgiven. So things could be washed clean. And he left us with with one mission and that was a missional mandate to maintain. And it's easier to maintain it within the bounds of freedom. Now, freedom brings its own cost because sometimes, as I said at the beginning, we begin to get so wrapped up in our freedom, we forget the missional mandate, and then God has to take away some of that freedom to remind us. But freedom gives the greatest foundation for us to take the missional mandate around the world. That's one of the reasons America has been so great. We have used our wealth. We have used our manpower. We have used the best that we have to take the gospel all over the world because we're a free country. There was nothing within our government and within our society that kept us from 
taking the gospel from house to house and street corner to street corner and tents set up on empty lots and churches and storefronts. There was nothing that stopped us from doing that. And while these men are boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, they are doing it because they've said, whether I'm free or not, I will preach the gospel. Authoritarian governments despise and fear Christianity. Because Christianity says God is the ruler of my life and not the state. We're not going to follow states state to try to keep us from taking the gospel to our next door neighbors. That's why Rome felt threatened. All communist socialistic governments feel threatened by Christians. Because there's one thing that we hold tenaciously to, and that is the freedom to take the gospel to our friends, our family, and our neighbors. And Peter and John, New Testament believers, understood that that freedom meant freedom to carry out the missional mandate. And when a government or a religious leader looked at them and said, you can't do that, they looked back and said, oh, yes, I can. And yes, I will. Do what you have to do, but I will tell the world about Jesus Christ. And persecution brought some rather strange things. Chapter 4, verses 21 through 37, as Peter and John leave. Now remember, they've been threatened. They've been told not to preach the gospel. And when they come out, in verse 21, everyone's praising God. <laughs> oh, what for? Well, they're praising God for the miraculous sign, the healing of the man. You say, they aren't sitting around getting upset because the religious leaders just said you're not allowed to preach anymore? Nope. Do you know why? That wasn't important to them. They were going to do it anyhow. Their lives had not changed one iota from this meeting they had with these leaders. Not one iota. They came in there because they were preaching the gospel and they left with the intent to continue preaching the gospel. Nothing changed. Threatening, all of that, yeah. If you'd have asked any one of them, call them aside and said to you, <clears throat> what do you think they're going to do to you because you went ahead and preached the gospel? Here would have been the answer. Whatever God allows them to do, they will not go any further than God allows them. You remember the little discussion that God had with Satan about Job? You touch his wealth, you touch his health, you touch his, uh, his family. But he said, I will decide where and when you stop. You will not take this any further than I allow you. Folks, we need to embrace that. Whatever God allows, remember, it will not go any farther than he allows. He will bring it to a stop at the very moment he says it's to stop. You'll notice in verse 23, <laughs> I love this. As soon as they were freed, they didn't go someplace to 
<clears throat> calm down. They didn't have to get down to Starbucks and get a coffee. Or, they didn't. As soon as they are freed, <laughs> they're walking out the door. They returned to the other believers and told them what the leading priests and elders had said. Verse 24, and when they heard the report, <laughs> all the believers lifted their voices together in prayer to God. Do you know what the average Christian would have done today? They would have spent hours talking about how discouraged they are and how, how terrible this is and, oh, woe is me and, oh, I'm going to lose everything and I'm going to, no. <clears throat> said, Lord, oh, sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in there. Why do you think they started prayers like that? They were reminding themselves that this great God in heaven that spoke everything into existence is in control of this situation too. Down in verse number 29. And now, O Lord, hear their threats. John and James would have said, and bring fire down from heaven and just cook them. I'll rejoice if they all wake up dead tomorrow. Hear their threats. Give us your servants and each one of us have to fill in the blank. But for them, great boldness in preaching your word. Don't let this discourage me. Don't let their threats and the persecution. And after this prayer, the place is shook, filled with the Holy Spirit. Preach the word of God with boldness. Exactly what they asked God. They are united in heart and mind and shared everything that they had. They had come to the place that persecution brought rejoicing and praise and sacrifice. Different than most of us under persecution. Instead of rejoicing and praise and sacrificing what we have to take care of people, our tendency so many times when the church is persecuted is to get together and just complain. Time that we could spend in rejoicing. Time that we could be praying for God's power in our witness. Jesus promised that we are actively involved in living out his purpose, proclaiming the truth and its principles, and challenging the world to believe his claims. Persecution will, in fact, come. And when it comes... We each have a personal decision to make. Will I be filled with worry and fear and complaining and criticize? Or will I see it as an opportunity to witness to an audience that I would not have without the persecution? A platform to stand up and defend and teach by example the principles of freedom? And give a public display of rejoicing and praise and sacrifice. And today, my friends, you and I must make that choice.